0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Game Devs Quest. I bet you all ain't used to hearing both our voices at once, but I'm sitting here with my buddy Taylor. Hey, guys. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, guys, the reason we're here right now, both of us, together, is because this week we did something a little different. We did something a little special, um, and we hope you guys enjoy it. it. ties nicely into our theme for this month, which is goals, motivation, keep going, don't quit. Uh, we got a chance to sit down with some great people in the game dev community.
1: Yeah, we uh, we talked with Chris Deleon of Gamkito, a really inspirational figure who helped us actually get into game development indirectly. But uh, additionally, we have Tim Ruswick, who's um, part of Game Dev Underground. He has a really awesome YouTube channel, uh, focuses a lot on inspiration and marketing, things like that. And then we have Alana Lanair, uh who used to be a voice actor and was a really a pleasure to talk with. So it's really fun getting to know them, having a conversation about um, things that hang people up in the game dev world and, and how to kind of break through those things. So really hope you guys enjoy this episode, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
2: Game Devs
3: Welcome everybody, uh, this is, uh, I'm Chris, Let's we'll go around do some introductions, it's gonna be a, a kind of a weird special episode, uh, we just wanted to get some people together and just talk about stuff, what stuff, we'll talk about in just a minute what that's gonna be, but first off, who's with us today? I'll kind of go through order on my screen, Taylor, if you want to introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, hi guys, my name is Taylor Bukite, I am a uh, co-host of Game Devs Quest uh, with my friend Rhett, who's also here. Uh, I don't know how in-depth we want to go, but...
3: <laughs> sure, uh, Rhett, uh, if you want to say a few words about yourself...
0: Yeah, my name is Rhett Weisenfels and like Taylor said, I'm uh, one of the co-hosts of Game Devs Quest and uh, we're just a podcast that kind of started to track our own journey learning about game dev and we kind of like to build a community trying to find a a safe place for new game devs to kind of find their feet when they're trying to, you know, explore the community and and, and get into it themselves.
3: Rock on. Alana, do you want to say a few words about yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, My name is Alana Lanier. I was... An actor in New York City for like 10 years before moving to Austin to focus on game dev. And so now I am kind of along the same journey. Indie, game dev. It's a pretty cool place to be.
3: Rock on. And then Tim Ruswick.
4: My name is Tim Ruswick. And uh, I'm a dude that didn't think I could make video games for a long time. And then I made a bunch of video games. So now I spend my time trying to let everybody know that they can make video games too.
3: Nice. Awesome. And I am Chris Deleon. Uh, because we'll be cross-posting this episode probably across other channels and things, I'll introduce myself stuff as well. Uh, but I run Gamkito. It's a worldwide online practice group for game developers. Uh, and a lot of my mission in life has just become about how to get more people into making their own games. It's been a lot been a lot of joy and learning in my lifetime. It's just been making games recreationally, even hobbyist level. I've done some professional stuff. My real love has really just been the stuff I do, like freeware, where I've got nobody like telling me what to do, no bosses... No investors, no customers to satisfy, just doing what I feel like. <laughs> and so that's kind of what I'm about. Uh, and so as far as topics to talk about today, even though a lot of us share a background in game development and interest in it and can, like, address things in those kind of examples, we're thinking maybe some more kind of general subjects for people out there, a lot of people watching, listen to our stuff, may come from some other small business background, software development and apps that aren't games, etc. cetera. Uh, and so I think, I which was all had the qu- had the idea about, like, quitting, question mark. Because that's something that, like, in very nuanced ways, can be looked at at different scales. I think it's a super great question to jump off of. Was that you, Tim? Maybe?
4: Yeah, I think... Because I think the the big problem for anybody that... Because I've been been on YouTube for close to a year now, and I've been working with a lot of game developers, putting out content every single day, and I talk to a lot of game developers by that. And what I didn't realize for me was that the major problem in all of this, making a video game, making your dream game, making your indie game, is you stop too soon. <laughs> that's that's the biggest problem. It's not all this marketing. It's not all the stuff. It's not all the things that people think. It's just they stop too soon. So I wanted to kind of explore why people stop, like what kind of stops us, why we get discouraged, what makes us you know, not continue
1: forward. What do you guys think about that? <laughs> that's a, I feel like that's a tough it, question to answer. It, it, all, it all depends on the person. For me, like growing up, I was never very confident in myself and I think that's a lot of of game devs like you first get into game dev and it's so cool and so exciting like all the possibilities of things you can make and then you realize what it takes to make a game that's cool and polished and something I'm struggling with being a pretty new game developer is making a game that's actually fun to play like yeah. I've made Plenty of games. Last year, I made uh, nine games, and none of them are fun. <laughs> so
3: Sometimes <laughs> as as there's a perception of people who are like who are beginning game developers or outside of game development, especially like the armchair critics, will be like, "Oh, why didn't they just make this more fun?" As if it's like with music, like why did they just make it more catchy? It's like, turns out that's you don't like dial up the fun. That's not quite how that works. Um, there's a craft to it. Um, that's though, and, and I think part of why I like, you know, I like that it's a different scales of Sometimes, like, to do the things we're meaning to do involves quitting some stuff that we change our minds about. Because, like, I, I, for years, was blogging every single week about game development. Like, that was my hobby game dev blog. It felt like this part of me. And at some point, I reached a point where I was like, this is not where my energy is best being expended. And, like, I had to make a conscious choice to quit that in order to move on to do, for that matter, the podcasts and the ebooks and the other stuff that, like, was a good direction for me. But each step of the way, sometimes, like, there's reasons, right, what we needed to do, quit something or some things or a way of doing things or... Well, and especially.
1: Think, go ahead, Taylor. Sorry, Tim. Uh, especially for people like, like people who are your audience, I feel like Chris is mostly geared towards hobbyists, at least at the start. Uh, for, and, and I'm a hobbyist. I work full time. I have a wife. I have animals. Like, I have a lot of things that I need to take care of every day. So to say, okay, today I'm going to spend an hour or two hours on game dev, that's a choice, but it's also a sacrifice. So like what, what things am I going to stop to, to make game dev possible? Um, And there's a lot of hobbies that I have sacrificed for it. So,
4: yeah, I mean the majority of my life, because when I started game development, I was like 15 or 16 and I stopped making games because I had this belief that it just wasn't possible for me to, to do it Um, at least make money with it or, or get anywhere with it. And so I ended up going into marketing and, you know, 10 years later, I was really unsatisfied with my life and then just kind of had like a quarter-life crisis and just decided, to, oh, well, the video games are the thing that I love. I want to go back to that. And going through that now and trying to help other developers along the way, it's like that belief was what stopped me. It wasn't my ability. It wasn't my capability. It wasn't financials. It wasn't anything. It was just the belief that I didn't think it was possible. And I'm finding, like, for me now, making games, it's still, like, that same belief still comes comes up for me sometimes, but in different ways. So, like, for example, like, when I'm designing a game, I wonder, like, how do I design this the right way? Or is there a right way? Or is this mechanic fun? Or are people lying to me when they say it's fun because they watch my YouTube videos? You know what I mean? So, like, there's still all this, like, stuff in my head where it's, like, it's trying to stop me actively. And like, I just noticed that, like, Chris was right. Like, there are some things that you have to stop and you have to make sacrifices. Uh, but like, there are so many people that I've seen in my own personal life that just were the version of me that never went back to the thing that they loved. You know what I mean? And it's just that kind of breaks my heart.
3: <laughs> Atlanta, I mean, obviously, you kind of were on a certain track in New York City. And then inhibited some things in your life and left some things behind. What sort of things, like, motivated that decision where you realized it was the time to stop one thing to try to start something different?
2: Well, I always did stage crew and behind-the-scenes stuff, and I always kind of enjoyed that more. But, um, I don't know. Well, actually, long story short, I got into a car accident. (laughs) I got into a really bad car accident where I had to sit on a couch for a month, and I couldn't really do much other than sit there and think. And I realized that a lot of the things I was doing, I was doing it because it's just what I've always done. So a lot of the habits that we pick up, it's just something that we've always done and we never really questioned it. I've always been an actor. I've always lived in New York. This is just what I do. And when I started thinking about it, I realized I'd like to create something of my own as opposed to being a part of someone else's idea and their design. And I've always loved video games and video games come kind of naturally to me and my skill set. And my wheelhouse. So I looked up where's the best place for people who are into game dev, and it's Seattle and Austin, according to my research. And Austin has the better weather, so I came to <laughs> Austin.
3: <laughs> good choice, good choice. That actually reminds me, I mean, part of and it's an interesting theme since obviously our, our focus is here are primarily indie in terms of our game development preferences. Um, when I was mm. in my brief Windows, I was in and out of AAA for a few years. And I met this, like, super capable, great senior-level engineer guy. He does a bunch of back-end stuff for Command & Conquer, multiplayer, and those kind of things. And he actually expressed to me that, like, in high school and stuff, he loved being in theater, loved being on crew, in part because he didn't want to worry about, did he act well that night? Was it the right play to put on? Whatever. He liked being behind the scenes in a way that, like, part of what he finds rewarding about giant company game development is, like, was that the right feature to add? He didn't know. He did what someone asked him to do goes home happy. And, like, that's a neat, different perspective than, like, the indie kind of wants to stress over, like, do I even need this level? Was this the right yeah. character at all? Um, different thrills we get out of it. Uh, it's, it's, I was going to
4: say, being indie is almost like kind of being an entrepreneur in a way. Like, it's, it's one of those things, like, when you're working a job or anything like that, um, you, you know what you're supposed to do. You know what the objective is. You've you got to do the thing. But designing a game from scratch is kind of like being an entrepreneur where you don't know the right thing to do. You just you got to figure out how to make it work with all the little pieces and that's really intimidating man because like there are so many branching paths of possible infinite realities of correct decisions and there may not even be one you know path that's better than the other they may all just be different and it's harder than it sounds i, I, I can know?
3: say what i've seen a lot of people have quit early on it's part of like the kind of things that we try to address through our like in game keto club we have kind of a structured like one two three kind of, I think of like a karate belt progression Is they'll have this sort of they get stuck from the sheer volume of options that they're not used to having to like figure out what you know like they get stuck on even like which programming language to use which engine to use and it's tough because they'll go out there and do some research and find they're all getting trashed because they're all dysfunctional there's problems with all of them and the answer is like (laughs) that's how anything in the world gets done duct tape and staples and like compromises like (laughs) learn to love it right like but every step of the way. Yeah. What
2: I'm hearing, though, is that there's a lot of people, kind of, you have reminded me of it, Tim, a lot of people have this thing where they need to do it the right way, they need to have it be perfect, they need everyone to love their game, maybe not everyone, but they need it to be XYZ, and that is the obstacle for them, it's not even the knowledge, it's not even what they want to do, but they want to make sure they do it right, and it's very interesting to me to understand the fear behind that because for some people that's motivated by the fear of uh, rejection and then there's some people who they're their own worst enemy and they need to be better than xyz and then there's some people who are looking at mario odyssey and going well that game was really fun i want to make a game like mario odyssey not knowing that first of all nintendo is nintendo it's not your basement and all the <laughs> things that go into it and the millions of people who work on these games and they're saying why can't i make a game like that it's a lot of pressure that they're putting on themselves honestly if you can make a pixel move a couple of feet congratulations you made a <laughs> game go from there
1: right on, yeah, and I, Rhett, I think it also oh sorry i was supposed to hear from red as yeah, well <laughs> Rhett. Sorry, Rhett.
0: <laughs> no you know something about quitting at least for me i'm one of these types of people that you know It took a long time for me to realize this, but a lot of it came down to like the people that I surround myself with. And it's actually part of what makes me and Taylor work so well together is that we're both doers and we both really like having passion projects and creating things. You know, before we got into game dev, we were uh, making music and then we were trying to make films. And, And then one day it's like, hey, you know, I saw some game dev stuff and Taylor's like, yeah, we should try and get into that. And here we are you know, holding each other accountable and all that sort of thing. But I can't even count the number of projects that I've been a part of where I tried to drag a friend along or I wanted to do that, you know, for the accountability aspect and for the bouncing ideas off of each other. And those people end up being total energy sinks.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: You know? Yeah. That's
3: it's like like the classic problem of a gym buddy who like they kind of give out way before you do. And and suddenly the struggle becomes trying to either drag them or give up on them. And then it's kind of weighing on you. And
0: And I think that's an important lesson to learn is that you can still be friends with people, but they might not be suitable to ever do a project with or work towards something with. The gym buddy, that's the perfect example. And I think uh, most people are like that where they want their friends to be involved in the things that they're really passionate about. But at a certain point, you just have to cut your losses and you might have to Meet new people or just go on your own at the same time.
3: We've actually been surprised at how much or maybe I guess rather how little uh, people in the club, uh, like very rarely do we actually have direct referrals of somebody joined who's a friend of somebody. And it's because there's a, such a high barrier to effort. It, it really is like someone's on the, the like club football team. Like there's a massive time commitment there. A lot of stress, a lot of like you just may not be into that. And like, that's fine. But like you can be friends with the person, and just not do that thing that they're sinking those hours into. That's why.
2: <laughs> I also think a large part of growing up is not so much discovering who you are, but chipping away what you're not. So you have to try a bunch of things and chip it away and go, mm, I tried that, not for me. Mm, I tried that, not for me. Until you kind of chip at the core of who you actually are, That's at least what I think. So a lot of the times people think they really want to be a game dev or they think they really want to be into something. And then they try it and either they realize right away it's not for them. Or they're so married to the idea of what like they want to keep their word or they really like that idea. Like the people who want to be rock stars and they have yet to buy their guitar type of a deal. Or the person who buys a hundred books about something but they never actually do that thing. There's a lot of barriers that people... Just just do it. <laughs> just yeah. do it Decide if you like it and then go from there.
0: It, and me and Taylor were actually just talking about this last week on our podcast where, you know, there's these people that they want to be something. And so then they go out and like you said, they buy the hundred books or they go out and they buy the nicest guitar ever. And they've never, ever learned a song or learned how to play a chord or taken one lesson. You know, there is like kind of a balance that you have to strike where, yeah, sometimes you just got to take the leap and you got to look where to start. But that doesn't mean you start in the middle or you start at the end either. You know, you kind of have to start with one toe in the water sometimes.
4: Yeah. yeah you and- too, to, to shed some light on that from a marketing perspective. So I ran a marketing company for like five years. And in marketing, it's actually... Uh, it, this is shady, but it, it's actually to the company's benefit to convince you to believe that by buying oh. their product, you are somehow closer to your goal. And a lot of companies do that. Like with uh, – it's got this book. You make a game in four weeks and do this the, and do this. The
3: magic pill. Yeah,
4: yeah, they sell the magic pill because it's easier to sell. And so I actually have a video about this. It's called False, false Positives. And like when, when you're buying something or something like that, a lot of people – think that they're making progress just by buying the thing or putting the money down or getting like I want to start a YouTube channel for four years man I bought the camera one year I bought the microphone the next year I bought you know what I mean like one little thing at a time and then finally I started it and I didn't even need the camera I don't I'm using my webcam. <laughs> <camera now. laughs> so it's just like there's so much stuff in your brain that just like is not true it's just not real and we just force ourselves and to kind of think that way
3: yeah and, and people see the same thing with like with exercise equipment where they'll you know they intend to work out so they think they just buy the right thing um i'm a bit of a sucker for old tony robbins stuff like when he was hungrier <laughs> early in his career like 30 years ago he's a different guy now um but one of his old stories has to do with this person who like they they were they were just totally out of shape they needed like they they wanted a fitness trainer but they were trying to do all the research to like find like the perfect technique and trainer and he was like you just need somebody who's going to yell at you at first, like you just need to do it at all. Step one, and you're so far from like needing the Olympian level. Let's get you ready for the gold medal kind of thing. Um, and I think so many people are uncomfortable with like that. Really, again, it is just like you might have everything you need. Um, I have seen though the opposite effect, and that's part of where part of why I moved away from that free weekly blog entry for six years uh, on Hobby Game Dev was realizing how many people just kind of thumb through those like they like they're in the magazine rack in a store and like. They have a vague interest in it, but they're not really—they're not committed. They're not really doing it. They're kind of, kind of on the outskirts of like, oh, that's neat. That happens. Um, whereas, like, once someone does get, like, at least a little bit invested, and I'm not saying a lot. I'm not saying go buy the exercise equipment, but we do tend to prioritize the things we've spent money on. Like, well, I'm paying for a subscription to WoW, so I may as well log in at least a few times a month. Um, and there's this bit of vet investment effect of, like, if someone's got no kind of skin in the game or nothing to kind of redeem out of it, again, we prioritize, like, well, I already bought these books, so I should read them before I do something else. I don't know. I don't know do you if y'all think- felt some of that in different aspects or does it just kind of not resonate it, with your stories? I think the key
0: is to that is that you don't have to um, buy the year-long gym <laughs> membership. You know, you can you can start with the jump rope or you can start with the free weights or the punching bag. You can hop on the bicycle and ride around town. There's so many um, cheap uh, entryways into things. And I do agree that an investment is a good way to build accountability towards yourself but at the same time, it doesn't have to be the thousand dollar guitar yeah. or the you know the hundreds of dollars of gym equipment.
1: Yeah, going back to game dev too, like um, just the sheer number of tools that are out there. Like you're saying, Chris, like it's really hard to pick a tool. And now it might be a little bit easier with big names like Unity and Unreal out there. But I think that's part of the reason. Like when I first started looking at this a couple of years ago, it was like I installed Unreal, I installed Unity, I looked at them for. A few minutes and I was like, well, I don't know. These are like, what do I know? Which one do I pick? It really I feel like to get started you just have to pick something. And it doesn't matter like you read on Reddit or whatever, people hating on one thing over the other because this programming language is more efficient than this one or whatever. Like, I've seen people with like click team fusion, a game engine that does I mean, as far as I know, no programming, make amazing games. You know, it doesn't matter exactly what it is or what level it is just start and establish the habit whether it's game dev or exercise or whatever once you get going i mean
3: Uh, yeah i think sometimes there's this poisonous uh impression this especially comes from people who and i say this with the kindest of hearts because like i i was one of these people at a point in my life way back when uh but people who like especially if they've received deep technical training have this concern that well if you start wrong you can never fix the problems that you're going to have formed from like, oh, you started with basic, you're screwed, you'll never be an engineer, done, game over. Yeah. Or like, oh, you used to use game maker, you'll never be a real game maker, like that's that's the end of it. As opposed to like, I know plenty of people who like, for a few years did that, learned some level design from the process, made some collaborative projects, met some people, went to GDC, talked about their projects they're really working on, because they're really building things, and then like, hopped over to ActionScript 3, or HTML5, or whatever Unity, or whatever programming language platform made sense at the time, and it wasn't a problem that, like, they'd done this because human beings can still learn new things. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, like, not a problem that, you know... I was like, oh, it's a weird yeah.
4: connotation with that, too. Like, it's... One of the, like... Because I, I stream game dev sometimes, and I use Construct 2, which is, like, a drag-and-drop type of deal. And people will come into my stream, and they'll say things like, oh, my God, LOL, this guy makes game dev YouTube videos, and he doesn't even program. And I'm just like... Like, one, I remember how I, I used to think that way. I absolutely used to think that way. I used to think, like, oh, I'm an elite programmer. That person just uses that program. They don't know what they're talking about. But what they don't realize is I spent 10 years programming. I built super applications, web applications, all kinds of stuff. And I went back to that because it takes me 10 minutes to make a platformer, whereas it took me eight hours in Unity to figure that out <laughs> the first time. Right? So, like, people, there is there's a connotation there. I don't, I'm not sure where it comes from, but, like, when you can get past that, I've helped a p- couple of people get past that. Like, I really promote that as much as I can because, like, I don't think you should spend all the time and learn the stuff and build all the technology or build a game engine or do all that if you want to make a game. Because there's easier ways to make a game, right? Just go straight for the yeah. goal, skip all the.
2: That's yeah. like learning how to drive a car, but before you can get your license, you have to build the car. Like, why yeah, exactly. would you do that?
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: When I do my little speed coding videos, I do them in HTML5 JavaScript because what I like is, like, you could walk into a store, open Notepad, Type it, and now the game runs on that machine. There's like no install, no whatever. But all comments on there like, oh, but can you do it in assembly? And I'm like, <laughs> I actually did in 1997. My first game was Snake in 1997, like with DOS and C C and assembly inline. And it turns out most of that is like wasted time. Like it does not help me or in anyone at this point to like know how to write a pixel plotter, to know how to like change resolutions with system interrupt calls or anything. Like none of that matters anymore. That's just dumb. And the sheer amount of time people waste on like trying to learn antiquated technologies to, like, like you say, like, build their own car before they learn how to drive is just, like, like, there's a layer there that can, like, okay, I want to focus my game development on, like, where should my shape be, where, when should the sound effect play, what happens when things collide, not on just, like, these very rudimentary, you know, yeah, I I just want to see the uh, person who builds their own toaster. Like, from scratch?
4: That was insane. That was insane.
3: Like, the dude, like, like, mines his own ore and, like, smelts his own steel (laughs) and, like, builds his own plastic out of, like, materials from trees and whatever. It's been, like, five years and I think five figures or something insane to just, like, make this really terrible-looking Barely Works toaster. And it feels like that sometimes, right? Like, that... (laughs) But people feel like... And maybe that's part of the reason why people quit, because they feel like it's not legitimate unless they're doing that. And they get frustrated by the high wall to, like, oh, my God, all this work just to get text on the screen. And yeah. Like, yeah. There's a-
2: are you guys familiar with Twine? Or is it yes. Twine? Yeah, 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 yeah. Tw- yeah Twine. Like, just that. Just make like a choose-your-own-adventure Goosebumps novel. That's a game. Make a board game. That's a game. Get a deck of cards. That's a game. Go to <laughs> camp and look at what the kids are doing. That's a game. We don't need to make Call of Duty. And everything. Oh, it's so frustrating. Go on. Sorry, guys.
3: It's only <laughs> a game if you spend at least $85 million on it. I think we all know that and that code is coded
2: from like zeros and ones. Yeah, yeah
3: exactly. Like, yeah, really B- binary only. Screw assembly. We only do straight machine code in this family.
2: Oh my goodness!
3: <laughs> yeah, you were
2: saying I interrupted someone. I'm sorry. No worries. I
3: think Rhett, you've got us next.
0: Yeah, the, me and Taylor have a close friend actually, and he was you know into coding and and really interested in game dev long before me or Taylor got into it. And uh, but he's one of these guys. You know, he's been building his own game engine for years now more than five years i would say probably even close to 10 and uh every time i talk to him you know he's got these grand plans about well his game engine the game he's gonna make with it as soon as he's done he's just gotta you know finish putting the physics in and doing all this stuff and i started game dev with taylor last year uh we've been going at this for about exactly a year now and i'm further along and done more projects than (laughs) he has and I've mentioned to him, you know, he thinks that using something a tool like Unity is almost cheating. And I, I've almost broken down that that conception that he has, but it's he's one of those types, you know, it's like, oh well, I made my own game engine. It's like, yeah, but what have you what do you have to show for well, it now?
1: Yeah, and that Are going to so to I'm sorry, Chris. No, go for it. I, I was gonna say that's the thing though, like the the player doesn't care. They don't care that you made your own engine. They just want to play something that's fun.
3: They don't care if you made it from, like, sprinkling fairy dust on a box and, like, the game inside. They literally (laughs) know nothing and don't care.
4: Uh, Where do you guys think that comes from?
3: Uh, uh, So, I mean, so, uh, well, so I was going to say, to that engine point of unity, like, uh, 10, 11 years ago, uh, for, like, Spring Carnival, I programmed a little game in OpenGL with C++ to, like, make this little simulation of our buggy relay races we do at the, where I went to undergrad. And then just as an experiment, like six years later, I rebuilt in Unity because, you know, it didn't exist at the time. And I did in like in like three hours in an evening, completely rebuilt all of what took me 10 days of like not sleeping when I was <laughs> an undergrad using C++ and OpenGL. And I was like, oh, now it involved kind of skirting around some Unity ways of doing things and breaking some defaults and going under the hood and whatever. But like it was just so much ridiculously faster. And I yeah, I do wonder where that impulse comes from of uh, and again, I've known plenty of these people but I think part of where they get lost sometimes, too, and you mentioned, like, they're developing their engine, haven't maybe finished a game yet. Part of what I've tried to steer people away from is, like, where a good engine emerges from is use cases. It's that you've built a game, you've you've gutted, scrapped, and reused some of that code on another game you built, gutted, scrapped, and reused some of that, so now it's been battle-tested against five, six, seven different use cases. That's where Unreal Engine came out of. Unity Engine actually began as a failed game that no one played, but the tools they built were generalizable enough, they just kept running with it and made that their sort of focus of their business, like game engines that are good come out of a use case, not from just like scrapping code from someone who doesn't yet know how the pieces actually get used or have to fit together.
2: See, I don't think it's, I think it's the um, opposite side from what you guys are saying. I think it's that they want so badly, but they're either so afraid something's holding them back to making this game and you did. So they're not okay with that. So, but it's not a real game. We didn't do it from scratch. Like, I'm doing it from scratch, which is why it's taking me so long, but you didn't do it right, and you made a fake game. So, it, it's like a procrastination insecurity thing, I think.
3: Yeah. Probably yeah, defense really mechanism, right? I think of. it comes
0: from, like, the same place that, like, a lot of this, like, toxic nerd culture sort of stems from. Yeah. <laughs> For mentality. It's like, oh, what? you don't like Harry Potter as much, like nobody can like Harry Potter as much as, you don't even know what house you're in. And you think you <laughs> like Harry Potter, you don't, you didn't even build your own game engine and you think you're a game dev? It's like yeah. a thing.
2: Or even like what, Spider-Man's your favorite comic book hero? What, you just watched the movies? Do you not even know any other comic book heroes? Do you know what happened on page 23 of episode whatever? It- it- it's
3: F- Filthy <laughs> casuals. But- yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, when I was, uh, I remember I gave one of my early talks about uh, like this progression. I've kind of been banging the drum on for many years. Is like this historical progression of you build a crummy '70s grade game before an early '80s grade game before a late '80s grade game. Just because it gives us these limitations of like first, it's colored rectangles and movement and input and text, and actually maybe not even text yet. And then there's like sound comes, you know, everything comes later, graphics and all that. Um, and I remember I tried to give this presentation to a bunch of uh, undergrads in computer science, and like afterwards, one of them was like. You said that the Atari had so much RAM, but that's actually the amount of storage on the cart. And I was just like, did not did not sink into this person um, anything I just said. <laughs> and and I don't think he's made any games since. Uh, it's been a while, but yeah, I, I I I don't know. I wish I could find a better way to constructively address where that comes from. Maybe it's just toxicity and poison, and I don't know.
4: I think it's a it's a, some it stems probably stems a little bit from like wanting to feel superior. Like I know a lot of like especially me growing up like I always felt like I was invisible sometimes and like nobody noticed me so I think a little bit of my elitism at first came from like my way of making me feel better than the people that like wouldn't notice me in a way like just my little psychological thing but like I think anybody that wants to improve can like very quickly see the better alternative like I had one guy come into a stream and he started that way he was like Uh, He uses Construct 2, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, dude, well, you know, I like 2D games, and Construct 2 actually can make games way faster than any of these other things. And then he started asking me questions, and it was like I I started to see the slowly because I think the community around, like, my streaming wasn't one of that toxicity. Right. And so he was the odd man out in that specific community, and he started to notice that, that people didn't agree with him, and then he started slowly changing his his viewpoints and then he ended up subscribing to me. So nice. Yeah. Like I think I, I just wish the the community in general in game development was like that so that some of this behavior could maybe get weeded out. I,
3: I wonder how much of it might just be sort of, and uh, I, I know nothing about the statistics of all, whatever, but like vocal minority effect of like many people are like totally reasonable, but like we don't hear them complaining as much cause they don't, they don't send us hate mail. Um Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I I think it's also gotten much better. Like this, this all used to be so new and so foreign and so strange. And I, I, and actually this actually relates to, I think part of where maybe it still comes from is I will see people on Twitter uh, who are otherwise doing good work and reasonable who are giving advice. That was correct advice when they got started 11, 15 years ago. Part of what's kept me relevant as an educator is I keep upgrading and updating my knowledge and techniques and methods and platforms every five years or whatever. And they're still stuck to like, well, in 2005, here was the right thing to do. And I'm like, if it was the right thing in late 2017, it may not be the right thing to do now. Like, that's... Just, the, the Everything just changes so quickly. It used to be necessary to do things certain ways, and they were right then about what was right for them. But, like... There's
2: also this idea that there's only so many best there's only so much room at the top to be the best of something there's plenty of room for everyone and i wish that everyone would be just wonderful at what they do and we could all be wonderful at what we do and then we could all have killer games to play but we all want to be the best maybe pokemon just got in our heads when we were kids <laughs> i don't know what it is but people think that there can only be one or two i mean that's the best it's the definition kind of screwed me over
4: there, but you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> a scary mentality. Like there's not enough room for everybody wherever we're headed. And I like, I see that a lot in, in game development. It's like, you'll see if you look on Reddit, you'll see people post games. Oh my God, this guy is making the same game. I am. Uh, my two years is completely shattered. What am I supposed to do? Like there's somehow not enough room in the world for both of those games to coexist. And I don't know really where that comes from. Yeah,
3: and and certainly, obviously, people, I think they know in general that competition is hard and worse it's ever been. But they get the wrong idea because they never realize, like, everyone that I know in my professional circles who's, like, at the top of App Store pages or Steam pages, whatever, are super collaborative, help out everyone else they know in the network as much as they can, all on the same team, pushing themselves up as best as they can in opportunities and connections and otherwise and, like, cross-pollinating learning about, like, contract negotiation or whatever – because the ones who are like trying to lone wolf shark it for themselves don't stand a chance against the group thing, like the the shared mo- the collective mind of professionals who are willing to like not be that petty and and realize that like essentially at an indie scale of sales there's infinite customers like no indie developer is ever going to like oh because they've sold this game to everyone no one's going to buy another one again. Um, John Carmack had a great point of this many years ago as pre indie about like some interviewer asked him Half Life Two was about to come out Doom Three had just came out he's like are you worried about Half Life Two. Like doing better than Doom Three, he said he hopes it's great because when people like buy a game they like, they buy more games. When they buy a game they dislike, they stop buying games.
4: (laughs) I think it's the same reason that McDonald's sets up across the street Burger King, right? (laughs) Most people are like, "Oh my god, they're going to pull customers from each other," but no, that corner has a bunch of people that want to buy hamburgers. That
3: becomes the place in in town when you're hungry.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to set up my Burger King and I'm going to set up my Taco Bell. You know what I mean? Like it's it's people don't really like the same reason why malls exist. There are all these competing stores in the same place because there's a bunch of customers, and there's plenty for everybody. Taylor, haven't heard from you a little bit.
1: Yeah, I at? was good. Well, what I was gonna say was it's kind of cool just hearing because you guys, I think you guys are more in a professional sense, obviously, than me and Red are. Uh, but it's cool hearing that people who are, who are at the top have that kind of positivity because what keeps me coming back, honestly, like I just started streaming on Twitch as well, and uh, what keeps me coming back is that I have a couple people. Always in there that are always encouraging me, always yeah. being positive. And I don't know if it's because, you know, I listen to people like you, Chris, or other podcasts that are much more positive. You know, it kind of seeps into us smaller newbie game developers and it just, it really keeps us back. It keeps me encouraged. And I end up finding myself surrounded by those kind of people. So maybe those people that are more negative uh, either convert or. Go away! I'm actually,
3: glad, I'm actually sort of glad. Partly because, hey, thanks. That's awesome to hear. Um, but also yeah. because the desert. When we talk again, the, the sort of initial question of like, why do people quit? Partly here is this both fear and not unfounded of like haters of just like really destructive go after you harassment kind. I've been. I've I, there's things I should maybe shouldn't say out loud because it's going to give people ideas for techniques. I've had lots <laughs> of things happen to me online, um, and it, uh, just purely based on like I unfollowed the wrong person on Twitter. Or like from a video I'd post or whatever, just get high volume of just hate, uh, emails, posts, replies, just, just problems. I've had people try to break into my Facebook account two or three times a week for months on end. Um, that's, yeah. And, and like, and I think sometimes people hear those stories. I've had one of my training clients, uh, she was asking, like, she had seen the episode about, uh, what was it? Is it CSI that bases, or, um, CSI, the show that bases it on the headlines, like Law & Order. I think it might have been Law & Order. Um. And, like, about the story, they kind of did the episode about what happened to Zoe Quinn, and they changed the story around or whatever, she was like, should I be worried about getting into this based on, like, the harassment and things that happen? And there's no easy answer to the conversation, because, like, hey, it kind of does happen. Yeah, um, it
2: happens, but don't make that why you don't join. <laughs> right.
4: Uh, it, it, it happens more the bigger you get. And that's just reality. Like the more people that are looking at you, the more people are going to hate on you. And when I started, I was terrified that somebody was going to say negative in a YouTube comment. And, but like, as time went on, I realized that, you know, like the amount of emails I get, the amount of comments that are just so awesome, the amount of people telling me like I helped them finish their game or whatever, those far outweighed any little, negative comment and what you start to notice too is that the people that are really negative they usually don't have a profile picture usually not using their real name and like chris said and, and one time when we were talking he's like he's like i like to imagine they're probably like 13 years old
3: yeah well, <laughs> that's the thing right <laughs> if you argue with an 11 year old like you already lost like you, yeah. there's no win to that scenario they might be um but yeah that's that, and i think part of where the effect comes from though is this very real problem of people will put out a game on steam or on the app store or whatever and there's a psychological effect of, like, for every – if you didn't think it one negative comment for every, like, hundred positive things, that's the one that's going to weigh on them when they're trying to go to sleep. That's yeah. the one that's going to get under their skin. But, like, maybe it just wasn't for that person?
2: Um. It's also keeping one foot in the real world and not online. Yep. Because um, there's this I, – I don't quite understand it, and I do this a lot too, but – you don't have to put everything online. In fact, the internet is full of strangers who don't care about you. And they're just saying something because they think it's funny with their friends. So unless you would announce it to a room of a billion strangers and then feel like hearing what they're going to say, just don't put it on the internet. Or make your profile private and have a private profile with just your friends to go on about that stuff but the internet is just full of people who do not care about you most people there'll be a small percentage that can't stand you there'll be a slightly bigger percentage of people who honestly care about you but the majority of people do not care either way so if that type of thing is going to hurt you just don't put it on the internet
3: it, yeah I, I think a lot of the uh the, the power of like learning in a setting like a university or part of what we try to do in the club or whatever is walls is yeah. that like not everyone's first time playing a song needs to be on a stage. Not yes, every, and, and, yeah. like we, we put our games up there. We don't heavily promote marketing because like they're not really for the in person. They're to practice building them. We just put them up as demonstrations like here's the kind of stuff we do. But yeah, it's not necessarily about like don't put it in front of 100,000 eyeballs. If the aim isn't to like have it poked holes in for like, was this worth my time and money? Because it's a practice project. You're getting started. You're learning skills. You're getting basics. You're, you know, it's a first song on the piano.
1: Well, and I, I hear that. that too a lot. Where, like, if if you have a game that's up on a on a market store for free, you know, that's something completely different than if something was ninety nine cents. I,
3: I, <laughs> I, I will say uh, early experiment. I think several peers have kind of backed up this still happens. But I think it might have been o eight o nine market on iPhone. I had an app that was a uh, dollar ninety nine cents. But that was back when ninety nine cents could actually sell in the store. It's kind of gone away. But like, I tried making it free just to like experiment, so, you know, get in front of some people, get some coverage, whatever. And in the process, the ratings went down. Ah. And what happened was, if it was a dollar, they wouldn't play it unless they thought they'd like it. Mm. If it. was, And they knew what it was going into it. But if it was free, well, they might as well try it and just be like, well, I hated this. Mm. I <laughs> whoa, <laughs> They knew nothing about it going into it. And this realization that that filter actually kind of helped improved customer satisfaction in a way of like, unless, I, unless they understood what it was, they were going to cross that barrier into like trying it.
4: You know, yeah, that thing kind of see. thing can also affect sales. I don't know if you guys uh, know this, but back in the day, I had a, I had an application that um, it basically helped people get their assets into a game engine. Uh, an FPS creator was like this drag and drop thing where you make FPS games, but you had to use their assets. So my program kind of took your own custom assets and put it in the program. And I was selling it for $5 and I was pushing it everywhere on forums and trying to sell it for $5. wasn't selling. I wasn't making much. So one day read a bunch of marketing books, uh, read a bunch of psychology books and realized like, okay, maybe there's a perception around $5. So I increased the price to $29 and I made the page look a little more high-end and all that stuff. And then it started to sound like crazy. And same program, same everything, but there was just some kind of perception around the higher price tag than the $5 one. And And coincidentally, I got a ton of Positive feedback on that too. You know, I was terrified people were going to say, Oh my God, mm-hmm. Tim's a sellout. He raised the price on his thing. But no, everybody was saying, This is awesome. This is an amazing program. This is awesome. And that was super interesting, man. That's what got me into marketing. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, right. You got something to say? Yeah, that's the
0: same. I run into that same issue as a small business owner. And I see it all the time. People are coming up into the field that I work in and they price themselves out because they're trying to be too competitive and they go lower price than everybody in the same industry. And they get no business because people go, well, they're clearly not worth it. <laughs>
3: right. Yeah, yeah. There's this, there's this popular point from, uh, I think, Tim Ferriss back in his 4-Hour work week stuff about, like, that the competition at the low end is enormously higher than competition at the high end because so many people have all these confidence problems that won't let them operate there because so many people don't feel like they can deliver at that level. Uh, and so what ends up happening is, like, part of why the 99 cent apps disappeared was that, like, there were just this gush of them in a way that like the rates to actually advertise to try to acquire a user can't justify that price versus higher end stuff. Um, you can actually there's sustainably a, run it.
0: There's an artist that I follow on Instagram. I think his name's Dave Cho. And uh, he was starving for years and years and years. And he would paint these amazing things and he'd try and sell them for, you know, 50 bucks. Well, that was too much. So he started selling them for 10 bucks and he still couldn't turn them over. And finally he came into a windfall and, I think he got involved with Facebook somehow and he just started painting all the same things. And he'd be like, I could price it whatever I want. He'd price them at $80,000, hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> more paintings than ever. It, I mean, they ju- he, he'd paint them and sell them like that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's obviously very different to not be in a position of needing the money to be able to experiment freely and so on. Uh, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, it's this great point of, again, like we value these things. And I think there's actually some literally psychology research of, like, wine and bottles with different price labels on them. And they try to... And they have various kind of measures psychologists do for happiness readings and what that means in some sort of the most objective sense possible. And people legitimately, like, get more pleasure out of drinking wine that they're convinced was expensive than if they see on the tag right there that it was a cheap wine. That's part of the
4: experience, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, that brings up a good point, though, because another thing that I've noticed with a lot of game developers, like, I'm guilty of this myself, too, even understanding this stuff um is that a lot of game developers spend a lot of time on their product but not their packaging not their like the way that they present the product the way that the page looks the way the trailer looks and all that stuff and it like that stuff is so important because more people are going to see that than they're going to see your game you know, like,
2: I think that's a huge reason why Bendy and the Ink Machine is doing so well because Meatly puts so much effort into the iconic image and how it's gonna sell and what will it look like on t shirts and what will it look like in yeah. the item. I think you're that's a very good point.
4: It's really it's really good branding because I've heard of that game multiple times. I've never played it, but I've seen it from so many different sources and it's like I know I know the colors that represent that, I know the icon the imagery and all that stuff. And there's so many, like, because I do a thing called Feedback Friday every once in a while where I play people's games live. And people send me links uh, to, like, store pages, but it's literally just a title in a download link and a white mm-hmm. page. And I'm just like, one, I don't know if this is a virus or what this is. Like, it's just a blank page.
3: Game.exe. Go for it, <laughs>
4: but, see, like, the, the point of that page is to sell me on playing it, right? Like, you got to think of that as, like, a step. This is step one is to get them to click step two is to get them to download step three is to get them to play so it's just the amount of people that just don't even focus on packaging at all is is insane and i think everybody should do it a little more
3: well and these are definitely reasons why people quit whether it's small business game development otherwise is from either underpricing and trying to think that they're going to make up for it in volume where like unless you're running a super bowl ad like you can't reach that kind of volume to make up for infinitesimal pricing uh or this this thing of like like you say paying no attention to the communication to the person what is this thing? And, and, I've, and i've i've I think a lot of people with technical backgrounds or creative backgrounds always have this I don't, animosity is the wrong word, but this this resistance to learning the marketing side because you feel like it's slimy or manipulative or tricky. And I think some things that have helped me is to realize that like really it's about communicating what is this to somebody and would they want this? And when you look at it that way and realize like then I'm doing them a favor to get this in front of them to be like you like you will be glad that you've been introduced to this. And I think it was, Tim, your point that uh, you were explaining to me that, like, it's spam if it's not for you. And I thought that was a good way to look (laughs) at marketing where, like, if it's for me, then I'm actually, like, really glad someone let me know about, like, I I need this in my life, this game or this product or this software or whatever.
4: When you guys see those ads, like, traders hate him.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Jaws dropped by the doctor.
4: But the dude that is looking for that underground supplement that nobody else knows about to impress his buddies at the gym, he's sitting there going, like, oh. That's ad for that. Nobody's going to know I'm clicking on this. I don't buy these supplements. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So like you really got to think in like their perspective, like what that's one of the reasons why competition is good as well, because you have stuff to choose from. You could say, Oh, my games like that game. What did they do? How does their page look? How does their trailer look? If you're creating something completely new, you know, you have no idea how to sell it or who it's for.
3: Yeah. and that actually goes back to the uh, earlier point about the the, the symbol be like, oh, no, I'm making a game with a dragon. I discovered someone else has already made a game with a dragon. It's like it turns out that, like, there's also a nonstop stream of World War II games that everyone's still buying all of. And, like, and, and there's a sort of, like, this subtlety effect of, uh, I think in the, it's called the mattress store effect, where, like, some people want a higher price sale where they're going to, like, kind of be a little more pushy. Some people want be a relaxed experience. And even if they're all selling exactly the same products, all these different mattress stores coexist on the same blocks. Because, like, people don't all want it sold the same way. They don't want quite the same thing. There's these subtle nuances where it doesn't matter if it's also a space marine platformer. Like, yours is different somehow in a pretty important way in um, some personality, some hook to it, some different key that, you know. And, like, that's of interest to people, whether or not it's a little more realistic, a little more arcadey, whatever they can easily conveniently communicate. Um, yeah, by all means. Um, and, and, well,
1: go for it, Taylor. I was just going to say, I think a lot of people too, they just have their favorite genre and they just want to play really the same thing with like a different look to it, you know? So like for me, uh, talking about not making games that are fun, this month I started making a game that has like a feel like it's a real game. You know, you can move your little character around and it feels much better. And so I, I don't know, I feel like the fact that I'm finally starting to hit a genre that people can identify with is probably a good thing.
3: Yeah, I'll say up front, a lot of the struggle, and I think we've seen less of it lately, but uh, maybe about five, ten years ago, a lot of the struggle i ran into is people who felt like they, they, like, it'd be cheating to make their game in a genre. Like, that to be indie, they had to resist genre conventions. And I was like, okay, like, okay, if I go to, like, a bakery, and they're like, that's vanilla, that's chocolate, and here's this thing I just tried. Do you want this one? I'll be like, what the hell? Like, would you just take ingredients and just smush them? Like, these are established patterns of, like, I know what that is. I know if that's for me. I know if I like that. And like, that's useful to us, and you can have your riff on it, you can have your own style to it. But for God's sake, like likewise, you don't just like start making music by. Hold on, I refuse to be in a genre. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Like that's that's not how anything works. There's been a whole lot of trial and error. These survived. There's something here that people can comprehend. Um, yeah, yeah, God, use conventions. Get on the
0: bookstore, and you're like, I, I want that I want that genreless book. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> the one that's all of them, or none of them, or some of them.
3: <laughs> random sequence of words challenges the medium that's the
2: also if you notice especially for example with comedians doing stand-up um they talk about their own sto- well good ones they talk about their own stories and anytime you create anything whether it's art books games whatever it's from your own perspective so that alone my dragon's not going to be the same as your dragon but they If you get so specific about your experience, it's universal. So it could be I come from an immigrant family of all Irish people and you can come from an immigrant family of somewhere else. But if you get down really, really specific into certain things, we're all the same. So the more specific your game, especially if it's in a genre, the more appeal it's going to have. People are so afraid of putting them into a little niche, but I disagree.
3: Yeah, yeah. Helps people understand if it's for them, what it is. It helps them connect to your story. Helps them connect to you as the author. Um, I think that's a
4: human thing too because I feel like – like with, this is a little bit different. But with like YouTube, I noticed there are some things I didn't really want to talk about like the fact that I was depressed for a while. The fact that I had all these issues. The fact that I still don't consider myself a game dev sometimes even though I make games in front of people. But I realized that the more I talked about that stuff, the more it resonated so deeply with so many different people. And my, my brother and I, we always have this thing where we say the more personal, the more universal, like the more you think that you're the only person on the entire planet that has ever felt that way, the more likely it is the entire planet feels that way. Yeah. Yes.
1: That, that reminds me, um, I used to subscribe to the Headspace app, which is like a meditation app. And there was this one three minute uh, meditation where if you were, you know, in a really high stressful moment, you just need a second to take a step back. You listen to one of those and one of the things he said was there are seven billion people in the world how many people do you think are feeling the exact same way as you are right now probably hundreds of thousands or even millions of people you know so that is something like it's hard because everybody wants to be unique everybody wants to be different stand out and be um, valued but we're all humans we're all the same really <laughs>
3: yeah and, and, and actually that's a great point about uh, I, I, I feel like I'm maybe forcing it too much but to tie it back to this point like why people quit does come from this feeling that like they're alone in their problems and that like no one else has these same doubts issues whatever um i've been so i've been in and out of several types of professional game development with ways that have been successful commercially for other people maybe more so than myself but but games that reach people etc but i've also been i was interviewed for some articles some years back about imposter syndrome in which, like, there was lots of things where I was, like, make, when I was making levels for Boom Blocks, I just, just, like, could, I don't know, I just made a bunch of levels, and I just couldn't tell if I was doing it right, didn't feel right about it, but every week I'd mash out a bunch of levels, I'd throw away the 25% I liked least, and present the team to others. After I left the team, they dug them out of the archives on the trash to stick them back in the game, because apparently mm-hmm. the levels were good in a way that I was like, ugh, no, I don't know what I'm doing. And like it never goes away ever. And I, I, we have a one of our online events. Uh, what was it? Game Dev Biz or Joy Game Dev? Toru Moraki. He's been a professional for like thirty years ish in industry, and he still has these problems of like he said, like man, when the term imposter syndrome came out, like it resonated instantly with everybody every experience level. Is like, oh yeah, that's all of us. When, <laughs> like I know it meant something specific or used to. Now it means everyone. Yeah, that that never
4: goes away. It's so real, man.
0: Yeah, I. I uh, can't. I've just gotten to the point where I just incorporate imposter syndrome like into my process. You know, um every once in a while I'll play uh I do music for uh musicals at like local theaters here in Oregon and it's like part of my process. Like the weeks leading up to it I'm like, "How did I get here? Like I'm not a musician. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> These people are all great." And it's got, you know, and people are like, "Well, you're going to do great." And it's like, "I know. I just I need to have this, okay? <laughs> like let me just have my imposter syndrome." And I think it's part of like what sharpens your edge a little bit, right? No matter what art you're trying to create or what work you're trying to do, you think, "Well, I'm not worth it," so I guess I better (laughs) buckle down and try, you know, (laughs) do better than I am doing. And that's how you grow. And I think I use it as like a compass too to figure out like which direction I need to head in my life. It's like, do I feel uncomfortable over here? Yeah, okay,
3: (laughs) yeah. Also
2: a good thing because if people. For example, when I was acting, you could always tell who was doing it as like a bucket list thing and who like it was frustrating. And I get the whole wall, to game dev, because we have it in acting because there's people we dedicate. I won't get into it because I can talk for hours about acting and what it's like. But there are people who take it seriously and it's their career and their bread and butter. And then there's people who want to be Jennifer Aniston for the day and they show up. So you can always tell those people those people apart because they feel like, look at me, I made it. This is it. I'm an actor. And the people who are like, yes, I've been doing this for 10 years. Yes. My resume is 10 years long. Yes. I worked with Beyonce. I worked on Pokemon. I work like my resume looks pretty cool on paper. But if you talk to me, I'm like, I did some acting here or there in New York. I'm not Jennifer Aniston. She's really cool. I'm not her. And the People who are just like, yeah, I'm not Miyamoto yet. I'm not Miyazaki. I'm not Jennifer Aniston or whomever. That's because they have a goal in mind of where they're going, and that's where they want to go. The people who are laid back, like, well, I've made it. This is it. Well, great. They're not going anywhere. That's it. They've peaked. It's like yeah. the people who go on about the great days in high school. If your great days are in high school, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh,
3: there's this. There's this great Ira Glass bit where he talks about how people's tastes, like they like when they get into things, they struggle so much because they can tell their poetry, their art, or their writing or whatever is just terrible. But their taste is what got them into it. Their taste is what's going to lead them to get better. Their taste is why they're yeah. not going to stay bad. But everyone has to either get through that phase of, like, I hate my stuff and I can tell it's bad. Or, like, there's no one good. Because, like, people who get there in an instant, like, I'm so satisfied with what I'm doing, are going to stop growing instantly. And their stuff will never be tolerable by anyone. Yeah.
2: And <laughs> M- Illinois, everyone on set who works their life off this.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, I think were saying that? that's... Uh... Oh, Sorry. Oh. Were you going to say something, Rat? Sorry, dude.
2: No, sorry.
0: All I was saying is if you are that person that's instantly good at things and stop, then we all hate you. So... <laughs>
3: Yeah,
2: exactly. We can't stand you. Go away.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that does remind me of, uh, uh, only tangentially, but I was going to make the point about community. We talked about this problem of, like, this isolation, this feeling that, am I alone in this? Am I whatever? Part of the value of any community, this, this applies to our club, total, like, beginning, intermediate level people. This applies to the professionals that know who, like I say, have high-ranking stuff on App or Steam or otherwise. Part of what they do is they just turn to each other like, hey, this is stressful and scary, right? And they're like, yep. And, like, the amount of which that, that prevents them from quitting, from just realizing, like, everyone does that. And everyone who's, even if their game does well, is still like sweating the night before of a release of like, did we do everything we could have done? Did we do everything we we're supposed to have done? What if we didn't, it still fails? What's my next plan, et cetera? Is like, that's everyone. And just having any sort of peers or community to connect to helps us have some resilience through those from feeling like that's normal. That's it. That is the experience of doing creative or business things.
4: Yeah. I think, I think focusing on that good enough. Cause it, it's kind of weird. Cause you, you you got people that really think that you should make. You got the quotes from like the the creator of Mario about how you should you know take all the time you need to make the perfect game and stuff like that. But in reality, like the way that I've gotten through everything that I've gotten through is just getting to like ninety percent. Where like no, this this is not perfect at all. It's I'm scared it's gonna break. But ninety nine percent of the time it works. And people, some people like it, and it's it's good enough. To push out, it's yeah. good enough to do that. You can always come back to it and tweak it and do whatever you want. But like that perfectionism, that last ten percent or last twenty percent stops so many people from pushing their stuff out. It,
3: I, I, I'm a uh, let's see what I was gonna say. The, the, when my time on metal on airborne, we were prototyping some stuff using Pacific Assaults engine, which had been through like it was originally Quake's engine through Quake Two and FAC Heavy Metal and some other things along the way. And the code was just cruft everywhere. And and I asked the engineer like why when you shoot the gun does it spawn like 64 instantiated shots one of which gets used he was like oh one of the games in the history of it had this massive shotgun burst and so that no one had a reason to delete that because it was fine and <laughs> I was just like this kind of moment of like oh I see this is how everything like, I thought when I was like hacking games in college that I was like oh I've got all these shortcuts I was like that's the only way anything ships like that's reality and life at every scale sometimes just like kind of in an ocean of it instead of a bathtub of it but like that's it
2: Um, That's how you can tell good uh, speedrunners from uh, toxic speedrunners, because good speedrunners understand that, and they go, oh, isn't this cool, and they clipped this because they wanted that, and they saved this resource for that, and they get that, and watching them is such a joy. And then you have the ones like, oh, this game dev, they messed up this, and they screwed this, and they were lazy here. You can tell that person doesn't understand how the pieces are put together. And I think that if you watch more of the knowledgeable. Um, speedrunners as opposed to the more toxic speedrunners the more toxic even twitch streamers who are just sitting there playing you'll get a lot more information and you won't constantly get this like game devs are lazy no one's lazy We're, if, if you want to be like serious about something go be an accountant go be a doctor like do something where you've got a salary and that this, <laughs> the risk isn't so much no one does this because they hate video games everyone does this because we love what we do right on.
4: totally couldn't have said it better yeah Taylor, were you going to say
3: something? I think I saw you over there.
1: Uh, I was a while back. I don't remember what it was.
4: <laughs> Fair enough.
3: Fair enough.
4: I think all developers everywhere, no matter where you're at, no matter if you just started yesterday or you've been at this for 10 years building an engine, wherever you're at, you can make games and it's easier than you think it is, but it's going to require some dedication. It's going to require working on stuff when you don't want to work on stuff. It's going to require, you know, people posting negative things on YouTube. It's going to require a lot of little things like that, but it's awesome. It's rewarding and it's amazing.
3: Yeah. Agreed. I'll also say, and just just go back to this, like uh, this early point that like, it may also involve about the set of things like quitting certain things. Um, and I, I think part of like Elaine had a good point earlier about like trying stuff and then finding out they hate that or whatever is like, I, sometimes people, I think what happens is they try a thing, they prototype and I feel like that was step one of 11 towards finished product. Now, I understand, like, part of what you prototype is to throw away 90% of what you're doing. Like, to totally trash stuff, because you can't read minds. You can't do what the computer does in terms of telling if it's going to be fun until you try it. And, like, that can be an okay part of it. Um, I, I remember in uh, high school sports, just like, there were some coaches who seemed like, no one should ever quit anything. If they quit this, they'll quit everything the rest of their lives. And I'm like, no, maybe they should quit football, because there's other uses of this pretty human being's time. That, like, in the scheme of their life trajectory, they will not ever care about this and let them make that trade-off to like do this other thing with themselves i don't know there's a time place for (laughs) it
2: totally yeah also i think another obstacle to people quitting is that there's this idea that you need to be the next undertale you need to be the next whatever you don't need to be a commercial success to make a video game in fact you can make a game and just have you and your friends play it You can give it to your grandparents. Like, no one has to. You don't have to have it on Steam. You don't have to have it green lighted. You don't even have to have anyone more than your friend circle play it. Point is, you made the game and it was fun to make. You don't have to make money to do this. So you have to kind of decide am I doing this to make money or am I doing this because I like video games? Let's start with that before going, am I do i have enough here with that i can make money with if you go into it oh i'm going to make money again go to law school like do something where you're more guaranteed in money don't join this to make money
4: you're going to have expectations guy. yeah <laughs>
3: and, and i love i really love that point there's uh i wrote a blog entry many years ago about my friend in her hometown had a painting in their house and i was like who's the painting by she's like our grandmother and like that's worth more to them than, like, any Salvador Dali painting, than a Picasso, than whatever, because, like, they know this human being, they know where it came from, it's probably a painting of her backyard, and, like, the streams and the trees there that they knew when they went to growing up, and, like, there's so much more opportunity for that with, like, same thing we see in the music scene, of, like, it's okay to succeed as a local band that plays at the bars and the pubs and the people there know you and know your life and hang out with you and play pool with you, whatever. You don't have to be on MTV to be, like, a legitimate musician. You can actually, and, like, I love, uh, Jared Holtley talks about this, like, most musicians have day jobs and do other stuff and also, like, create awesome music and love their life doing that. And that that's not – like it's not like it's full-time music or you're not a musician. That's
4: not how it It comes down to expectations. Like, if you expect to be a millionaire by making a game and you get zero sales, you're going to be really upset. But if you expect to have five people play it on your first game and you release it and ten people play it, you're going to be super excited. Right. So like managing your expectation level, I think, is is really, really important because like I I saw a post on Twitter by like Mike Rose the other day. He posted a bunch of like actual numbers of like what people send him. They say, oh, I expect to ship 200,000 units and all this stuff. It's like
3: limbo. So naturally,
4: it's it's not realistic. Like I have thousands of people that watch me on YouTube and I'm hoping I'm hoping I can get a hundred sales on my game, like that's my expectation. Maybe I'm gonna pass it, maybe I'm not. But either way, like I'm managing myself. Like you got to balance it, right? You can't right. just like always expect one person to play it. Like you gotta you gotta stretch a little bit. But yeah. at the same time, like you're not expecting to be a millionaire with your first game, I think is really important.
3: And I will say, an aspect of that that I, I have seen definitely take some people out, like just flat out done with game GameStop for the rest of their lives, is when they base expenditures on unrealistic expectations. And like part of my job as a trainer and a coach and so on in game development is really like step one like if, is this your first game? It will not big mac. It'll not make back any money. Like don't spend any money on things unless it's pure vanity expense because it it really it'd be like paying for better sound mixing on like your first piano recital. Like that's not what's going on here. Um, any money spent will not come back uh, in any foreseeable time frame uh, on the project. Right? Like that's just but again, like if someone chooses to, they want to buy a better asset. They want to add some professional license. Whatever they can. But again, it's just that, that what happens is they'll, I've seen people sink four or five digits of savings into a project that again, no, it's literally the first project, like, like no hope. And then they come to me and they're like, well, what do I do now? And I'm like, I, I can't fix the situation that you have got yourself into. Like, unfortunately, yeah. that's the reality of like how every creative field or any business works.
4: Um, it's crazy how many people like think that super meat boy was edmund's first game or that you know like they and tommy's like his yeah, like
3: like, 55th or something
4: yeah like they seem to compare themselves uh in progress to like all of these completed masterworks and in reality all these guys have been making games for years if they haven't they've been working with people they learned a bunch of skills they they had more failed games than you can count like angry birds was like what their 37th game or something like F- that i
3: think that was i think that's where my 55th came from in my memory Fifth, but yeah, yeah. it is
4: but it was like way down there, and people—people, legitimately—I don't know where the belief comes from, but like I hear people all the time say that Rovio made Angry Birds. I want to make a game like Angry Birds. I'm like, yeah, but they didn't start there. I
3: assume it's, I assume it's just survivorship bias, so they don't see it—they don't see it until Probably. it's famous, right? I mean. The first song you heard from Katy Perry, she was, like, already on
4: TV. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. It's the same thing as, oh, an overnight success. There are no overnight successes. The overnight successes are people who have been doing it for 25 years, but you didn't know it because they were the person eating the hot dog in the back of the cafe scene in that movie you didn't watch.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, there was a great thread the other day of – it was it was TV commercials from the 70s and 80s that had Paul Rudd playing Super Nintendo. It had uh, Jack Black advertising Pitfall as a child. It had oh, there was another famous actor. It was like two seconds of uh, the guy who later plays uh, who's plays the Hulk now,
4: Mark, Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, it oh, was
3: yeah. like two seconds yeah. of him like getting exploded in a video game commercial, and like they were nobodies, right? Like nobody cared. Uh, and the other day, uh, Lauren and I were just watching a show, and I went back to some old Dana Carvey skits that had Steve Colbert and uh, Steve. Who's the other Steve? Steve Colbert. Correll. Yeah, Steve Correll. Yeah, acting together, doing this like kind of terrible, terrible <laughs> skit comedy. And she was like, this is unwatchable. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> it's part of what makes it exciting and fun and cool that like they kept doing it anyway for decades. <laughs> and now everyone knows
4: who it is. They, they got to where they're at with consistency. There's a great GDC talk. I forget the guy's name, but it's the guy that made Antichamber.
3: Uh, um, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Bruce Bruce Alexander. Yeah, and, Bruce. it's
4: called uh, Overnight Success, Five Years in the Making, and seven. he talks about all of the craziness he went through five years to have everybody tell him on launch day that he was an overnight success.
3: Right. And I think specifically he talks about like, the right, borrowed features from like his past seven or eight projects, stitched them yeah. together to make this thing happen in a way that couldn't have happened if it weren't for all these other games that no one's ever heard of and will still never care about. Right on, yeah. uh, Red, haven't heard from yeah. you, but what are you thinking about? Where where'd no. you head at?
0: I was saying it earlier because we were talking about kind of managing expectations and all this stuff and we're still sort of there, but you know, there's this idea, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, look, if you're making your first game, your goal shouldn't be to make money, but let's say you're one of the, the, the kids that's like, I'm going to make a game and I do want to make money. Well, part, I think part of your desire to keep going after making your first game is okay. If your goal is to make money, how much money do you need to make to be a success? If you sell one copy, your game made money, if, even if it's just your mom that bought it. You know what I'm... If your game is up on the App Store for 99 cents and your mom bought it, guess what? Your game made money, and that should be enough for you. I think managing those expectations is a big part to not quitting. And also just taking your small little victories, even if they're not like the, the grandeur that you dreamed of.
3: Yeah, I, I think part of why I've sometimes have, have steered uh, a lot of t- early training kind of people away from like that as an experiment. I told you, I, I've, there's some great jams that like literally focuses like sell one copy is like the jams theme. And I, sometimes I love that those things happen because it makes them, they go through the hurdles of setting up the store. They go through the hurdles of connecting the payment accounts. They figure out, look okay, at what's involved with it. But it's sort of like I was, a, I was a bit of a woodshop kid in middle school and high school. And it was like no part of our carpentry classes where they like, here is how to sell the chair that you're going to build. Like that's a different skill, like that's a valuable skill, that's legitimate marketing, business, understanding how to structure an LLC, whatever, how to file taxes correctly thing. But it's not really the same as like, let's learn the craft first. Let's build an object that someone might desire, maybe yourself, maybe your family member, maybe whatever. And then somewhere down the line, when your stuff is so good, someone's like, I want one of those. Then we tackle the problems of like, how do I deal with payments? There's like a whole government thing I got to deal with.
4: You guys ever heard of Startup Weekend? I've heard of it. I don't know much about no. it. So it basically, it's it's the premise that you, you – it's kind of like a game jam, but for startup companies. You go there for a weekend and you create a company. And I remember I went to one of them because they're so much fun. It's it, And I went to one of them and everybody formed their little groups and they're all worrying about their technology and their design. And I sat down with my group. I was like, yo we're going to sell something this weekend. (laughs) We're not going to make anything. We're going to sell something. So we spent an entire day trying to figure out what we could build to actually call people and sell them. And I wanted to sell something by the end of the weekend. And we actually ended up getting two different clients for the actual business that we started in that weekend. And then what what I said was like, yo, like whatever we can sell, we can make, right? Like as long as we're not going to make any ridiculous promises. But like, I guarantee you we're in a better space than any other company that builds great technology, they build great whatever. Like it's thinking about that end goal and what you actually want to achieve, I think can help you so much because so many times what people want to achieve is just right in front of them. Like they want to make the game then they want to make money then they want to do that but just kind of thinking about the whole process and where your end point is i think can kind of bring you into a good space that actually
3: reminds you of this this is i think one of the other things that some people get kind of looped on and went putting off until they have quit and they never try to do it is they have in their mind that like oh well my fallback plan is I, there's a kind of game i know i can make that would do well but let me first do the let me first try to do these other things and, and they keep kind of, like, like fantasizing about this, like, plan B that, like, well, my fallback plan is i will make a match three, right? Like, I'll, I know how to do that. And that'll sell. And that'll be fine. But let me do this other thing first. And if they'd ever actually do the thing, and when the people who do the thing figure out pretty quickly, like, that's way harder than it sounds. That plan immediately fails. And that's when the real creativity starts of, like, this is harder than it looked like. What do I actually have to do? How do I validate an idea? Um, yeah, just, just like, the, the rather than trying to build these different barriers between them and just trying the thing they think should be tried, um. Because they keep putting it off until they quit. And then they're like, well... And then they tell themselves a story like, 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 which is kind of fantasizing about high school. They think of like, well, if I would have done such such differently then it would have been great. I almost did. <laughs> I was one step away, one game away from taking off.
4: Dude, yeah. I think that's where prototypes come in as well. Like actually building something very quickly that you can play and kind of pass around and test is some like the problem with building engines is kind of the same as building a really large scope game is when your first project is like there's so much dark work there's so much work that you don't see that you don't see any visual indicator of that you're moving forward there's no like nothing there yeah, yeah and, and the,
3: the only the only real play testing you can get is having people apply it and do something with it to give you feedback on correcting it and that's <laughs> that's part of where i think i've, I've see people go and part of why they don't go to they don't go to shows they don't go to conferences whatever is they feel like Oh, that's just a way to get people aware of my game, and I can do that online. What they don't understand is you're showing people your game at conferences to get it ripped apart. You're going there to get feedback on what's wrong with it, so you go home and fix it, and every time you do that, it's Real getting feedback. better and better and better. Yeah. And the aim is to get hard criticism from people who are in the know, which is harder to get online than it is if you like can corner somebody at a bar in an evening after a GDC and be like, hey, uh, check out this thing I'm doing, and uh, let me watch your face as you're playing it, so when they wince, I can take notes. Taylor, um, I haven't heard from you in a little bit. Where? Yeah. are you thinking about
1: I'll- Well, I was just going to say, I mean, with game dev and really anything, it all starts with just doing something. I mean, I was one of those guys for a really long time who watched tutorials or read books or, you know, just pretty much had a passive buy-in with something, you know, and didn't actually start doing anything. But once I started establishing a goal, like the biggest thing that's really helped me is establishing a goal of hitting 10 hours a week of working on game dev. And so far I've been pretty good at that and like my amount of progress over the last 5 6 months since I started that has just gone through the roof. So it's really just doing stuff, establishing goals and working every single day to try and hit those goals. So yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to be game dev related either, I mean. Uh,
3: uh, yeah, I'm really glad you made that 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 example of a time goal where when early on someone's not experienced enough yet to estimate how long it's going to take or how hard it's going to be or whatever, or how many it's going to sell or how many it's going to reach or what traffic listing numbers are, etc. If the goal is just, did I do it three hours this week? Um, and I try to, I try to, uh, people always get ambitious. They're like, okay, well, I'm going to fit in two hours a night. And I'm like, you're not. It's like <laughs> someone tries to start a workout routine. They're like, oh, I'm just going to exercise two hours a day, five times a week. It's like, you're just setting yourself up to fail. Like you ease your way into this. And the same thing happens for game development. And if you have a full-time job and other obligations in reality. Um, yeah. that like, did I do the five hours a week? I am successfully making progress. I am doing what I had to do at this phase to get myself those later problems. And I love that you mentioned, too, these things where you kind of, for trials, kind of soaking it in for a while, where so many resources, uh, I think Chris Wade, uh, Chicago Game Indie, he was writing about, how like, he used to, he recently went back and watched some old GDC talks that at the time he just did not have the understanding to, like, really, like, latch into. And now he does, because he's building this awesome sports dog sausage game, whatever the thing is. <laughs> um, and, like, now he understands with actually being said. And so many materials that aren't going to grip into us until we've done things, until we've got ourselves past the, like, ABC steps, the things are sliding right off us anyway because we're not in a situation to apply them, to use them. Uh, Red, I see a nod. What are you thinking about? To me,
0: what you're sort of saying about uh, the ideas and the concepts sort of sliding off people until they have their foot in, that was one of the biggest roadblocks to pretty much any of the hobbies that I've ever gotten into, and especially game dev. And I found that once uh, I had Taylor to help me you know, sort of learn the coding vocabulary and learn the game development vocabulary, it didn't matter. Like you said, it didn't matter how many videos I watched. It didn't matter how many books I read. You know, I really had to figure out the starting place and the starting place was the vocabulary, you know? And I think that goes for any sort of hobby, you know? Same thing with music. If you don't know what your music teacher is saying when they say this, well, then you need to take a step back. You need to really lay that solid foundation before you can move forward.
1: Yeah, and so I work in IT, and I'm kind of starting to take over some, some roles and responsibilities at work that I am not too familiar with, and it does make me really anxious, you know, because like just this last week, we had a network outage for a minute, and I didn't know exactly what that meant with all of our different systems, but it was actually a good thing because it was trial by fire, and now, because I was in such a high-stress situation for an hour... The next time it happens, I'm gonna be so much more well prepared for it. So I, I feel like that's kind of with game dev too. Until you, you know, just put yourself, uh, just put yourself out there, start doing things and learning trial by fire. Like that's the best way to learn. You're gonna remember it the next time you run into this one bug or oh, this is the best way I make my character move this way or whatever.
3: Yeah, and I like that point too of the uh, the learning from the discomfort. That that's where so much of the learning happens that is actually like where someone should be really suspicious is if they've been like perfectly comfortable doing what they've been doing <laughs> in game development for many years, it means that they are not getting better. They're not learning new things, they're not tackling new challenges, they're not growing. And I do think one of the reasons I some people quit is that they will, they have their core wheelhouse. Everyone kind of comes in, usually with some sort of skill background. A lot a lot of them code, some of it's art, some of people are literally coming from a musician side and want to kind of bring it to life. Uh, but what they happen is, as soon as their skills go outside their main domain set, and they suddenly have to th- think about watching, like, business videos or thinking about code side or, or audio side, whatever. Um, they just sort of – they, they want to mute and turn that off and not have to think about not have to stress about it, make that someone else's problem in a way that, like, if you're trying to build a thing that's going to reach people in the world, free or otherwise, you got to pay attention to that stuff somehow. you got to cross these gaps that we're uncomfortable in that we're used to being able to kind of be like, oh, but I majored in this, so that's my <laughs> license to not think about anything else.
1: Yeah,
4: well, <laughs> the consistency in the discomfort. Uh, but also, I think one of the things that has kind of derailed me a couple of times is having that consistency, experiencing discomfort, getting somewhere, and then missing a day. And then I miss day one. And then day two, I'm like, oh, well, I missed yesterday. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's all good. And then three days and four days in a week and 10 years. Um, <laughs> and I think one of the things that I've always like tried to do is when I do miss a day, I continue on the next day like nothing happened. Just yeah. keep on that train of consistency. You're going to experience discomfort. But I, for me anyway, that's always been where I learned the most. When I got to pay rent you know, next month, that's when I get the most clients, when I got to do all that stuff. So it's a good thing for sure. I think you just got to recognize it as that and not shut down.
3: Yeah, there's a huge element of uh, forgiving yourself in that in terms of like let me pick myself back up and, and I think part of this just comes from like, if, if, if I was not me, but I was someone else who knew me, like trying to think about what would I, what would I say to myself? And I'd probably be like, yo, it's fine. Like, just get back on the horse, like whatever, like that's one day a year. It doesn't have to become weeks or months. Cause when we lose people like out of a collaborative club setting, it's usually if they go weeks without any sort of involvement, it gets harder and harder to get their wheels spun back up. Um, than if they just like had a slow week and that's fine, come right back. Not that much has changed, but when they come back and they don't know anyone, they don't know any of the projects, then they feel kind of awkward. They want to like have to be like, hey, someone catch me up. Let me borrow your notes. Um, no one wants to be that person. Um, I haven't heard from you a little bit. Uh, and this is actually also your wheelhouse, right? You think a lot about self-care, a lot of things about like healthy habits and sustainability because that is also obviously why we lose some people.
2: mm. You just have to be kind with yourself. You have to know, I don't like to call them limitations, but everyone does have limitations. So if one day, like for example, I have a condition where some days I have hella energy and some days I can't get out of bed. So if I have one of those getting out of bed days and I sit there and I beat myself up over something I can't help. Who's that helping? It's not going to do anything. So if you learn your habits and you learn how you work and say you're a night owl or whatever, you have to learn how you work best and then make sure you prepare yourself for success. So I know that I am dead to the world before 1030 in the morning. So if I schedule something for before 1030 in the morning, it better be something that I don't need a lot of attention for. Otherwise, I'm purposely setting myself up for failure. So if I know that I need these days, that there will be days that I cannot help it, but I will need to just be on the couch with a blanket over my head, then I can't have it – for example, your – your time goal i can't have a time goal of well every day two hours a day or even a half an hour a day that wouldn't work for me because some days a half an hour a day is impossible so if i have some sort of like well this week i will focus on this topic type deal that might work better so it's being kind to yourself knowing how you work and not beating yourself up over something that you can't help
3: yeah 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 knowing the strategies that may work for someone else but may not work for you and so and I, I run a kind of side mission of mine is trying to help people like try to apply some game development stuff we've used to help people in other situations who like have this thing they meaning to do but it's actually start a business start a podcast write a book whatever it's not a game and one of the things we were into the first thing i sent a list was like hey here's a story about this technique my dad found helpful it didn't work for me which are stories i heard back so many people like pomodoro just did not work for them now like it's obviously it's famous in part because there's people who works for and they tried it again and again and tried different things and it just was not didn't stick for them and it's like, okay, well, you know, it's the same reason why there's different foods and like different styles of clothing. Like, not everything's for everybody. And then not feel like, therefore, we're broken, therefore, we're defective, therefore, we don't have any way forward. It's like, okay, well, try another one. Um, <laughs> keep shopping. Uh, yeah, curious, there, from shop. the rest of y'all, what are some other things that like you find in terms of your what has or hasn't worked for you in terms of self care, time, you know, personal management, that kind of stuff?
4: you know one of the things because like with my youtube channel i've been posting a video a day for going on 10 months every day same time 10 months um i don't think that would have been possible without the youtube schedule feature It just it just wouldn't have because there are some days where i make five videos in one sitting and there are some days where i cannot get in front of the camera and everybody looks at that they look at the end result and they say oh tim's so consistent he's awesome he posts a video every day at 9 a.m no, There's sometimes <laughs> where I'm like, yo, I gotta, I know my next week is going to be gone. So I make a bunch, but I think knowing that, paying attention to myself, understanding that there are some days that I'm just like, like Alana said, just not wanting to get out of bed. Like there are days like that and you have to plan for them. So I always make sure like I have extra videos in the, the queue if something happens or anything like that. And my game dev is the same way. Like even a couple months ago, I decided to just stop taking client work and go full-time indie and even that, like that was my only job at that point, but still, it's not possible to do 15 hours a day every day. It's just, it's not like part of that whole thing was scheduling time to be unproductive, scheduling time to watch Netflix or scheduling time to go hang out with my girlfriend or whatever it is. Just like you gotta, you gotta understand your limits. And I, I, I had to do something that was so hard for me to do. Philophobia. The Fear of Love, that was my game. It was supposed to come out on Valentine's Day. And that would have been the perfect launch date in the history of humankind. (laughs) But I had to delay it. And not only did I have to delay it, I had to delay it with 10,000 people watching me, looking to me for game development advice. (laughs) Okay? That was hard. That was really hard. I spent like a month of anxiety, like not knowing that it wasn't possible, still not announcing it. But like, I had to do it. It had to be done. Could I have shipped a game out and and just pushed it out and made it happen? Yeah, but I wouldn't have been happy with it. I wouldn't have been healthy. It just it was not the right decision. And sometimes people spend so much time reading blog articles or watching YouTube videos or taking advice and saying this guy did this and that guy did this, but you got to pay attention to yourself, man. Sometimes you're the only one that can really tell you what you need to do. And that's rough. Like you got to have the confidence in yourself to be able to to do that. But it it takes work.
2: Right on. You bring up a really good point about crunch time. I hate crunch time. And I think that's another obstacle to people stopping and going or whatever. If anyone is watching or has any questions about crunch time, it is bad. Full stop. Crunch time is not healthy. It is not okay. There's like a hell week right before a Broadway show, like a week beforehand, that rush, that's not crunch time. That's fine. That That's like a Picking up the pieces, but to be in constant crunch time—that's not crunch time. That's overworking yourself, and that yeah. is not okay.
3: Yeah, the uh the studio I was with was uh, EALA, which was actually it was like a year or two after the EA spouse lawsuit case. So, for anyone watching who doesn't keep track of game industry news from over a decade ago, um, that was where it, like the studio was literally in continual crunch time, and essentially because what happened was it was like an eight-game studio in a big old couple buildings in LA, and anytime any team was on crunch they would be like, oh, well, the Rogue Agent team is on crunch. So we have to show our teamwork attitude by also being in crunch, despite the fact our game doesn't ship for two or three years. Um, and man, EA just got taken down by the lawyers in terms of like people got back pay. It changed the policies. They would, as it, when I was there, like my first summer as an intern, they would kick me out after hours because I would just be like trying to like study their code and read up on the repository docs and otherwise. And they'd be like, are you doing anything at all related to our work? And I was like, maybe and they're like then we can't have you here because we can't pay you and we don't want to be we like they had to like super clean up their act because like yeah, yeah continuous not okay but like you say like it's like hell weekend shipping products um there are situations like the week or two before something comes out and usually the other nice thing is a lot of companies will counterbalance that when they're doing things well with like vacation time after to like compensate make up for the time or maybe post release patch fixing whatever but yes yeah i'm glad you brought that up uh, taylor and Rhett, what have you all found in terms of works speed? doesn't i think the Rhett, you've got the mic ready
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Well, okay. So everybody's sort of touched on this, but the biggest thing for me, like I said, they touched on it, but it's that letting yourself off the hook a little bit. And, you know, because I think most of people's bad habits, and maybe this isn't entirely true, but at least for me, it always feels like it stems from this cycle of guilt. And Chris, you were sort of talking about this when people miss club meetings and then they miss the next one and they miss the next one. And then maybe they come back, but they're kind of embarrassed about it. And that comes from that place of guilt where they're like, well, I didn't hold myself accountable and now I don't really want to feel ashamed about all this. So I'm just going to sweep it under the rug. And for me, I used to always drop projects and stuff like that because well, you know, I overschedule myself or I do whatever and I step away from a project for a weekend or a week because I go on vacation or I'm working on a different project and while I'm on vacation or you know, I take a weekend off, let's say, I used to just constantly think about getting back to that project. Oh, I got to do this. But it became easier to just like forget to do those things because i was constantly always stressed out about it and then when i sit down it's like it didn't matter if i was working on the project or stepping away from it i was always stressed about that getting work done on something and i and i think letting yourself off the hook and you know for me that comes that comes in the form of unplugging a little bit and working on you know being able to work on another project or relax without feeling guilty or without feeling like there's something else that just demands my time and of course there are things that do demand your time. If you have a family, if you have a day job, if you have all those things, that's important. But it's important to be able to go and do those things, and be able to, you know, dedicate yourself to doing, you know, good work at your, you know, job or spending time with your family without having that constant, you know, a whimsy in the back of your mind that's just tickling you, being like, you got to go back to work on your game, or you got to go back to work on your book, or you got to go back to work on your album. You, know, you got to be able to just sort of disassociate from those things every once in a while. And for me, that was the biggest step in terms of my productivity, with being able to flip the switch, being able to you know, unplug, being able to relax without feeling guilty, that sort of thing.
3: A couple years ago for uh, IndieCade, we invited out Dr. Jennifer Hazel of Checkpoint to be a keynote. We had kind of a theme that year of like some mental health considerations.
4: And
3: she shared this point, which I love, which is that um, like there's, there's times of day and like while she's giving a presentation where she's Dr. Hazel with her certifications as a clinical psychiatrist practicing person who cares people, and there's times a day when she's Jin. And that then there, like, she swears and does all kinds of other stuff like she would not do as <laughs> Dr. Hazel on the stage. Um, but that game developers really struggle with this because we get the, it's part of our identity. It's like someone who's like a skateboarder or a a soccer player. We're like, we don't necessarily have time periods where we feel it's okay to stop being a game developer between this hour and that hour. Because in our minds, we still are thinking about it, we're still doing it, we're still stressing over the same things. And it's about how healthy it is even to our game development objectives longer term, to learn how to be able to switch that on and off, and be like, right now I'm Chris Christian game developer. Right now I'm just Chris hanging out with my wife and like going for a walk in the park and like playing with a cat, and it's got nothing to do with game development. Like that's fine. That's in fact important. Yeah. Uh, Taylor, what's <laughs> yeah. you you something for that?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's all just a matter of finding the balance while staying productive, essentially. And so it's it's experimenting with schedules and honestly, just kind of like the, the enjoy game dev stuff, uh, maintaining a healthy, a healthy lifestyle, um, spending time with your family, making sure that you're moving around. I have the tendency to just sit here all day, you know, but like just making sure that you have a, a weekly goal or something of, okay, I'll spend three days a week where I have two hours where I don't, I'm not on a screen or something, or Read a book, you know, like it's all just just finding a way of maintaining that balance. And my, my wife would probably say I'm not that good at it. But <laughs> uh, but uh, for for game dev, you know, um, hitting a stream schedule has been really helpful for me, um, partly because I'm staying accountable. I, I've set that schedule. I'm staying accountable to myself and people watching. But also because for my wife, she knows that these two hours, four days a week are my time for game dev you know and that's yeah. been really helpful for me but it took a while to figure that out you know yeah um don't be scared to experiment yeah Well. I, I, yeah and, and like i say streaming sometimes is just like kind of panopticon effect
3: of like because people are watching we feel supervised and so we feel like we gotta keep delivering on some sort <laughs> of schedule for our show for our audience whatever um but i also just love the point about blocking out some time and scheduling and defending around it where it, like some people feel like they you know, if you had a doctor's appointment, if you had a work appointment, you would be like, no, I can't do that that night. I have a thing I have to do. But they don't give themselves permission to set a thing in their schedule It'd be like, Tuesday night is the night every single week that is set aside. If there's an emergency, whatever, I'll bump that to Thursday. But like, that's my evening for me, for this, for this thing that's important to me. So I can keep feeling that progress is like so important to versus like nebulous floaty like, you know, intention. There will be time when it will happen. If you can't, yeah. Yeah, if you can't show me when it's going to happen on a weekly calendar, it may not. have It might not.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's what I, I fell into that a lot. I I would go into these binges where I would spend every single day for a month coding for every hour after work, and I just got completely burned out and exhausted. But then there was the other side where if I didn't say, "Okay, today at five PM, I'm going to work on this thing," it just wouldn't happen.
3: Right on. Right on. Um, But yeah, I mean, I figure uh, obviously we could talk endlessly about these things, but I figure "Eh, we've covered plenty of turf. Um, Let's make sure to wrap up in terms of uh, people mentioning their Twitter handles, their show names, anything else they want to share about where to find you, your stuff, follow your views, uh, etc. Starting with Taylor and Rhett, if you want to kick us off on that.
1: Yeah, we can. We can co-author that. Uh, uh, so we host Game Devs Quest podcast following two scrub game developers. You can find us at airpodcast.com. We have another podcast. This is going back to the balance thing. Uh, it's a book club podcast, and we're reading all kinds of novels that kind of challenge our viewpoints, which has been really fun and also a nice way to detach from game dev. But yeah, anything podcast-related podcast related can be found at airpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Game Devs Quest. Uh, we also have a game jam coming up. we That's one thing that we've we've really had fun with uh, over the last couple of years is, or last year has been hosting game jams on Itch. And so if you guys want to join a game jam that's really low barrier of entry, uh, it's called the One Mechanic Game Jam. So go to bit.ly forward slash omgjam3. Anything else I miss, Rhett? Uh,
0: well, other than your your personal Twitter handle. And also, <laughs> I don't want to get pedantic here, but... Uh, in our book club podcast, we haven't read any novels. So we've only read nonfiction. Uh, oh, sorry. No, that's fine. I'm being a jerk.
3: Nitpicky. <laughs> Actually, that's the Atari's RAM, not the amount <laughs> yeah. of storage. I- <laughs> uh,
0: it's just my position in life that I have to pick on Taylor. That's, that's all. fair. Yeah, uh, that's, that's
3: the dynamic. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you guys can also email us if anybody ever wants to do that whole thing. We're gdq at airpodcast.com. My personal Twitter handle um, is at ret is awesome. All one word. And like Taylor said, you know, our whole podcast, uh, we're out there like trying to build a community for people like game devs who haven't found their f- footing yet. So if any of you guys have friends that are listening, you know, you have friends that are game devs that just don't know where to start. Like we have all sorts of resources and all sorts of recommendations and all that sort of stuff. We go over it in pretty excruciating detail in our podcast.
3: <laughs> awesome. Uh, Atlanta, do you want to comment next on Twitter handle or where those things can find you?
2: Sure. Um, Actually, what's funny is that I used to have a Twitch and a YouTube and all of that, but I quit for exactly the reasons that you're saying. You feel like you need to constantly be on and it was too much. And I realized that it was just depressing and I couldn't do it. So I'm only on Twitter. (laughs) That's it. I'm constantly on Twitter. I'm addicted, but I'm only on Twitter. And I wrote it down because I can never remember how to spell it, but it's T-Y-B-A-W-A-I. It's an acronym. I'm the only one in the world who knows what it stands for, but my boyfriend says it's that's how he pronounces it but it's t-y-b-a-w-a-i feel free to at me
3: awesome so we, and again <laughs> the kind of things you tweet about it right it's not uh it, it includes self-care motivation
2: yes i tweet a lot about <laughs> self-motivation and self-care and game dev and various things that i do in austin in my travels
3: right on rock on awesome and then tim ruswick where do they find you and your stuff
4: Bye, Tim Ruswick, if you didn't notice that already, um, I'm bad at email, so don't email me. But uh, Game Dev Underground on YouTube and Tim Ruswick on Twitter, uh, those are my handles, and I'm uh, constantly posting stuff about self improvement, motivation, marketing, game development, uh, getting games done, making games happen.
3: Nice. Uh, I'm Chris Delian of Gamketo.com. That's G-A-M-K-E-D-O. There's no E in the middle. It's not Game keto um, yes. I do own those email addresses and those URLs to like redirect for people who can't spell it correctly, but it's usually a sign someone's an outsider when they're like, oh, I really like what you're doing with Game Keto. And I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> um, so yeah, G-A-M-K-E-D-O, that's the Twitter handle, which is actually a lot of retweeting. I I heavily, re- I just like help share attention, traffic with other indies out there. Um, it's the club, Gankito.com is access to information about that. The video courses, YouTube, podcast, etc. all Game Keto. Um, you can find that, but yeah. That's it for today. Um, thanks everyone for being with us for chatting. It's been lots of fun. It was thank fun. You. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for coming out. <laughs> <You> know, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs>